Let's pray as we begin our service this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to assemble together. And we thank you for the challenge that you've given to us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And I just pray that you, your spirit would be present, manifest its presence here among us, that, I would, that you would help me get out of the way and that you would speak through your holy word and touch the hearts and lives of people and that we would collectively be different people for having been here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I stand before you this morning as a recovering hospital administrator. I spent the first three decades of my career in uh, healthcare management and administration. It came to Albany to work in the clinical department of the hospital there in 1994. Seemed like a long time ago, one year away from 30 years. But to become a hospital administrator, I had elected to pursue a clinical degree as my undergraduate, not healthcare administration like some folks do. And so I went to nursing school. And in order to go to nursing school, you have to take certain sciences. Uh, chemistry being one. I don't particularly enjoy taking um, natural sciences from from uh, secular universities because they just exclude God out of the discussion. And that offends me personally. So I wasn't looking forward to taking this science class. And I recall the first day when I went into the classroom and found a place to sit down I was feeling a little sorry for myself. And this old guy, professor, I'm sure he was tenured and probably close to retirement. He stood up without preamble and without introduction. He said, the earth is 96 million miles from the sun. If it were um, 87 million miles from the sun, like Venus... The surface temperature on the earth would average 847 degrees Fahrenheit. And life as we know it would not be possible. He said if it was 141 million miles away, like Mars, the average temperature on the surface of the earth would be 80 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. And life as we know it would not be possible. He continued on. He said the earth has um, an atmosphere, roughly 20% oxygen and 80% nitrogen and other inert gases, depending on where you are on the planet. He says if the earth's blending of oxygen was 30%, then the ignition threshold for starting fires would be much lower and a tiny spark would, would begin a conflagration. And life on earth would be very different and possibly not possible. He said if it were 10%, um, our brains wouldn't function as well as they need to for complex problem solving. And again, life as we know it would not be possible. On and on he went like this for 50 minutes went through the different disciplines of chemistry and biology, physics and astronomy. And with each segment, he would make some kind of Goldilocks comparison. Not too hot, not too cold, not too near, not too far. 
and, and conclude with the same observation. If it weren't so, life as we know it would not be possible. Finally, the bell rang. They had bells. I don't know if they still have bells in, in college anymore, but they did then, and signaling the end of the class, and it was time to move on. And so students began to collect their things, and the old professor raised his hand. And everybody stopped. He said, you know, the most amazing, the most astonishing thing of all is that there are rational thinking people who would have us believe that all of this happened by accident. Class dismissed. I was shocked in a secular classroom. I heard what amounted to was a gospel testimony about the existence, the presence of God. It's amazing. I had an opportunity to chat with him about it later and ask him what the reaction was. He says, well, most people ignore it, and a few folks will ask more questions about it. Sometimes we'll get a Bible study out of the, out of the discussion. And so uh, I was, uh, it's kind of typical of most things uh, having to do with general revelation. My chemistry professor was employing general revelation to communicate the existence of God, the message of God, to a secular audience. The Bible speaks, number one in your notes, of two kinds of revelation. And the first is special revelation, special revelation, which is what we find in the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, and at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. We could add to that, he has also spoken through the apostles that were the disciples of his son. Second Timothy 3, written by Paul, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. King James says the man of God may be perfect may be complete and prepared for every good work. That's special revelation. It is given by God. It's written through his servants. It's often accompanied by miracles. And it is recorded in the Holy Scriptures. It's bookended uh, by, on the one end, by the book of Genesis, who begins with a discussion of eternity past. And it concludes, on the other end, with Revelation who presents a discussion on eternity yet to come. A second type, number two, of revelation described in the scriptures is general revelation. General revelation was what that chemistry professor was making when he was describing the design and order in creation. Now, there's six passages that I've listed here. I won't be going through all of these this morning, But these are the passages that are generally agreed by Bible scholars to be, uh, to include the discussion in the scripture about general revelation. General revelation reveals nature and the character of God through creation. It is saturated through the scriptures. One of my favorites is in the book of Job, where there's this long, tedious argument between Job and his comforter, 
comforters about why he was suffering. And in chapter 38, God shows up. And he doesn't talk about anything that they've been talking about for the previous 36 chapters. He talks about his credentials as God, as creator. Number three, in your notes, Psalms 19 passage establishes the framework that God has used for general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth, excuse me, and the firmament has shown his handiwork. The skies above show the works of his hands. What this suggests is that, number A, God is the source. God is the source of general revelation. And so we, and we have confidence in general revelation because it comes to us from God. In August 2017, we had a, an event out in the parking lot here uh, when the Oregon experienced a full eclipse of the sun. And we had t-shirts made up, and it said, The heavens declare the glory of God, took this passage. And, the, and under that, we had the, the time, the date and the time, that the eclipse would actually occur. And we had confidence in that because of the design and order of creation. And we know with precise um, measurements when that eclipse would occur. Number B, general revelation of God can be known by anyone. It doesn't take a degree in science. You don't necessarily even know, have, to, have to know how to read. It says, day after day, they, for, they pour forth speech. And night after night, they reveal knowledge. Paul says that the character and the nature of God is so obvious, so clearly manifest through what has been made that the atheist is without excuse. Psalm 1. Number C, general revelation has been available throughout history. Every, everybody who was ever born has had the same access, the same privilege to, to know about the existence of God uh, through what has been made. Number four, um, conscience has been depicted as the thumbprint of God in the creation of man. The fact that we have a conf- conscience that we have an understanding, a sensitivity to right and wrong, distinguishes us from all of other creation, and it's particularly the animals. In uh, Romans, the Apostle Paul, said, speaking of the Gentiles, says that the requirements of the law, that would be the law that was dispensed by Moses, was evident to Gentiles, even though they didn't receive the law, because it was manifest on their conscience. He says... Uh, the conscience bearing witness, at times accusing and at other times um, excusing them. The existence of conscience is a key feature of uh, the presence of God in our lives. Number five is not in your notes, um, but it's a point, it's sort of a parallel point that I wanted to make here. Other examples that have been applied to general revelation include natural law. Natural law is expressed in our Declaration of Independence, uh, Jefferson refers to, uh, to rights. We are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. Natural law has been something that's been debated since there's been uh, faith. A second kind is um, logic, the fact that we can, we, we can solve problems, we can appeal to um, truth and make arguments and make, um, is, and 
develop an argument based on logic is evidence of the existence of God. A third one is cause and effect. This was referred to by Thomas Aquinas way back in the 13th century when he talks about the five evidences for the existence of God. And cause and effect means, it refers to design. Effect demands a cause. And design demands a designer. And spectacular design demands a spectacular designer. Number six, general revelation is not special revelation. They're not the same thing. They're not on the same corollary. And in my reading, there was a book that suggested that nature is the 66th book of the Bible. And that's nonsense. That's blasphemy, in my opinion. Now, there's a correction, 67th book. There are 66 books in the Bible, and, and, um, and we recognize that as a special revelation of God. But there's a temp- temptation, and I think oftentimes with evangelicals, to equate personal experience on a par with special revelation. I've had a, I had a religious experience. I had God manifest his presence to me through some event or in some special manner. And I want to exalt that experience on a par with special revelation. And that's a mistake. Oftentimes cults are originated in that way. Those who would, um, would do that would do well to heed the example of Peter, the apostle Peter. Uh, you recall that Peter, James, and John went with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus was exalted along with uh, Moses and Elijah. And uh, Peter reflects upon that later in his life in the second book of, of Peter, Second Peter chapter uh, 1, verse 17 through 19. He, Jesus, refer, received honor and glory from God the Father, when the voice came to him from majestic glory, saying, This is my son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. That would be the Mount of Transfiguration. We have also the prophetic message made more certain. The italics for emphasis are mine. Um, it's the confidence that... Um, Peter has in the written word, the oracle of God, written by the prophets and later by the apostles. We have this made more certain. I have more confidence in the written word of God than I have in my own experience. Who can beat having met with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration for experience? Peter emphasizes, and to us, he says, you do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. This is our missions week, and we honor and we celebrate and we support our missionaries, many of whom are on ministering on the darkest places in the planet. Uh, most of our missionaries, I would say, do not go to these places despite the fact that they're hard. They go to them because they are hard. Our missionaries desire for themselves to see the power of God manifest in these dark places. Number seven, 
God has created mankind with the capacity to know him. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, another one of the general revelation passages. Don Richardson was a missionary, along with his wife Carol, to the Sawi tribe uh, in Indonesia in the mid-1960s to the late 1960s. The Sawi tribe were a cannibal tribe, and they were a brutal tribe, and they um, celebrated craftiness, deception. And they would, um, uh, when Richardson told, for example, the story of Jesus and the crucifixion, and he got to the part about Judas and the betrayal, the Sowies would giggle and laugh because they, they, that was, Judas was the hero of the story to them because of his deception. And so it was a very difficult tribe to try to minister to. And so, um, and in fact, when the Sowies got involved in a war with another Sawi tribe, they couldn't make peace. Uh, you know, they got tired of the war. They got tired of killing. They wanted to stop the war, but nobody could trust each other because of their value of lying and deception. And so uh, Richardson said, I'd had it. I'm done with this. I'm going, going back home. He and his wife, the Sowies didn't want them to leave. And so the Sowies committed to the Richardsons that they would make peace. And Don Richardson said, well, how are you going to do that? How are you going to guarantee that when you can't believe anything that anybody says? And they, they described a concept that, that Richardson calls the peace child where the elder of one warring tribe would give his son to the elder of the opposing warring tribe. They would trade sons, and those sons were called the peace child. And as long as that son lived, there would be peace between the two warring tribes. And that was their guarantee that they would maintain the peace. And Richardson was able to use that as a method to communicate the gospel. And he depicted Jesus Christ as the peace child. And through a period, uh, a period of time, working with Sowies to cultivate relationship, working with them to meet needs, um, he was able to see actually uh, half of this tribe come to faith in Jesus Christ. They have a vibrant testimony even today. Well, after he... Um, uh, Richardson published the book called The Peace Child. He published another book, a sequel in 1981, called Eternity in Their Hearts, borrowed from this Ecclesiastes passage. And in this um, passage, he, he uh, publishes a lot of work that had been done at that time on um, the ancient tribes and their understanding of monotheism and the existence of a single creator God that book, I've listed the reference in your notes in the back page. You can look that up if you like. But he draws two conclusions that I wanted to bring up this morning. Number one, number A, there is no tribe that is so evil and so corrupt that they are beyond redemption. Everybody is capable of knowing God. And number B, there is no individual so far from God that they are beyond redemption. In fact, sometimes counterintuitively, we recognize that <coughs> people who are mad at God, who are angry at God or angry at religion, um, we tend to think of them as being the farthest away. But in fact, um, people who, um, the opposite of love is not hate. 
The opposite of love is indifference. And love and hate oftentimes will occupy the same end of an emotional continuum. And what that means when we're sharing faith is that people who are angry at God and who are um, uh, disruptive in their relationship with people who know God tend to be closer to faith than a person who is indifferent. I take encouragement in that personally, and it helps to guide my prayer for people in my life who are uh, away from God. Romans chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, Paul says, Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Grace, unmerited favor, God's enabling power is in existence to a greater extent. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's what our missionaries crave to see in their work with these people from these very hard places. They want to see the grace of God manifest in these dark places. And it is happening. God's grace is evident in the work of our missionaries. Number eight, the point of general revelation is to direct people to the gospel. Acts 17 recounts the story of the Apostle Paul as he's interacting with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in Athens on the place called the Areopagus. In Acts 17, verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. And then he goes on in verses 24 to 31 and describes God as creator. And he ends up with the discussion of God, uh, Jesus having come from the dead. Very much like that chemistry professor in that classroom. He takes people from what they know and he advances the conversation to what they don't know and in the process points to special revelation. Now there were two reactions to Paul in his discussion with the philosophers. The first is mocking. Um, in, um, um, one of the, in one of the passages, um, the responses to his comments are, what is this babbler trying to say? My guess is that's probably true of most of his listeners in this conversation. But there were a few who said, we want to hear more about this. We want to talk about this more. And, and I, I'm, I have to think that Satan hates this conversation. When we talk about, <clears throat> when we talk about creation, because there really isn't a rational rebuttal. We are saturated in a world filled with design. And there's a recognition, I think, even among the most cynical of us, that design demands a designer. You can't expect to explain all this by some cosmic explosion or a litany of genetic mutations. There has to be design in this. And so, um, so whenever we elevate the conversation to include recognition of God as creator, um, it creates an opportunity, a segue, for people to consider the reality of God in their own lives. And most people 
will probably dismiss it. Some might even mock, but that's okay. As in Paul's case, enough of them express interest to make the effort worthwhile. Number nine in your notes, pointing people to the gospel is the whole point of missions. John chapter 20, verse 31, these things are written to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Sierra Leone. I was meeting with some of our pastors, and I was thinking about this conversation this morning about general revelation. And I asked the pastors, what, what is it, um, they minister to Muslims, what is it that is effective in reaching and penetrating the hearts and minds of Muslims with the gospel? And they suggested three things. Uh, one, we pray for them. Uh, number A in your uh, notes here, <clears throat> after nine, we pray without ceasing. And there are several passages there listed about prayer. And secondly, we cultivate relationship. And third, we meet a need. And finally, we go and tell. We, we explain the gospel as the conversation advanced. But it starts with what they know, and we move to what they don't know. So we have examples of that. I have some photographs of our mission's work that I'd like to share with you just briefly. Um, there is a Melissa White in India who ministers to um, people, uh, indigenous people and their animals. And by providing uh, needed support to keep their animals healthy, upon which they depend for survival, she's able to cultivate relationship and then and to, and, and to have Bible studies frequently with women and to share with them her faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she is seeing fruit in that ministry in that very difficult part of the world. Next one is Marilyn Escher. Um, she is, uh, that's Marilyn there holding the blanket. Um, she has been translating the scriptures into the Wolof language in Senegal for 40 years, uh, for most of her life. And she's finally coming to conclusion with that. The lady in the left there uh, is named Agsila. And Agsila is the daughter of one of her translators. And what Marilyn has discovered is that the Muslims in Senegal are attracted to the words of the Psalms because they depict a personal relationship with God as creator, and that appeals to them. And so Agsila, being a musician, is able to articulate that in music and convey that message of the gospel to the wall of people in Senegal. I have listed on the back of your uh, notes uh, some YouTube uh, addresses that you can go and, um, and hear some of that music if, uh, if you would like. The blankets on the on the right there is actually accompanied by mosquito netting that were uh, purchased by a youth group in Brownsville, one of our neighboring churches here, to um, minister to the Talibi children, children who are technically enslaved by uh, Muslim clerics to do um, to go begging on the streets, and they provide these blankets for a place for them to sleep and mosquito netting to avoid malaria. Annette Trucco, who attends our church, has a ministry in Pakistan. Last Thursday evening, we were privileged to hear her testimony about evangelism and how 15 people have come to faith through this ministry in Pakistan, another very difficult, hard place for ministry. Jenny's school in Liberia 
as a, as a place that we've been supporting this last year. We helped her put a roof on that building. That building is intended to be used as uh, not only primary education for kids, but as a vocational school for people to learn an occupation in order to support themselves. And by extension, Jenny is cultivating relationship and meeting a need and, and helping them to understand and hear the gospel. Next one is uh, in Sierra Leone. This is a baptism in a place called Tisana. <coughs> Excuse me. We had eight people baptized in our church in Tisana, including four of our orphans there and two of kids from the community who were um, attending our school and two of the aunties that uh, support the orphanage there. But they And this baptism has resulted in more conversation from more of our orphan kids who want to be baptized, recognizing what it means in terms of their testimony. Next picture is from Waterloo. That's another church uh, supported by a church here in uh, Philomath. And there are four people who were baptized there in recent weeks. Next picture is a place called Moyamba in Sierra Leone. This is a church that is supported by Willamette Community Church in here in town in Albany. And they had six people who recently were baptized. And um, the next picture is a group of medical students that we have been supporting, sending to medical school. Uh, Bob Lewis and the men's ministry has initiated a, um, a golf tournament. We call it the West Africa Scramble for Medical Scholarships. We've done two of them so far in September. And the proceeds from that golf tournament are sending four of these students to medical school. And that has changed their lives. They will have a very different life. And in turn, because medicine is so corrupt in that part of the country, every person that they come in contact with as a physician will be positively influenced because of the integrity of these physicians. Next one is in Mavaro. This is a negotiation we're having with a, parent, with a chief and with a, um, the imam to do an agriculture project where we want to raise a crop on 20 acres and uh, split the proceeds of the crop, use part of that to pay the teacher and the pastor so that that ministry will become self-supporting. And the kids there who are protein malnourished will have access to a greater amount of protein and be healthier. And that gives us the right to be heard. We've baptized six people in the past year in this church uh, in Mavaro. And finally, we have Laura Baker. I think I still have that picture. There she is on the far left. She was just there with us a couple of weeks ago. She is a graduate from Oregon State in oceanography. And she wants to help us set up uh, fish farms where we have our churches, where we have our ministry, and we will be able to... um, to meet a practical need and cultivate a relationship and share the gospel. So I'd like to just leave you, if if I could, briefly, with a missions challenge found from the book of Matthew chapter 11. (coughs) It's a story of Jesus and an encounter with the disciples of John the Baptist. In verse 1, after Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect somebody else? 
That's a peculiar question for John to ask. You recall, John was the one who first introduced the world to Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was John who baptized Jesus. And it was John who heard the voice from heaven who said, Behold, um, this is my beloved Son whom I love, and him I am well pleased. What more credential would John require than to, to understand that Jesus was Messiah. So why would he ask such a question? Jesus gives a clue to that in his response. In verse 4, go back to John and report what you see and hear. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. He's quoting from the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah chapter 35. John, no doubt, is reading other parts of Isaiah like the apostles were. John was expecting a Messiah who would overcome the enemies and establish a kingdom on earth at that time. And so John had to be thinking, if this is Messiah, what in the world am I doing in this prison? And that's why he poses a question to Jesus. And so John's disciples go back to give their report, and Jesus makes two astonishing observations. The first one is um, in verse 6. No, excuse me, verse 11. Truly I tell, tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone that is greater than John the Baptist. You read that, you think, Really? No one greater than John the Baptist? I can think of some possibilities. What about King David? What about Moses? What about Abraham? Wouldn't they at least be as great as John the Baptist? They're all born of women. But Jesus gives a clue to his uh, suggestion um, in verse 10 of Matthew 11. He said, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. John was unique. John was the first to introduce the world to Jesus as Messiah. And that's what made him great. That's what made him greater than all of the rest. An extraordinary pronouncement. And then he says something even more extraordinary. Jesus continues in verse 11. He said, Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, is greater than he. It's amazing. Greater than John the Baptist? How is that possible? Well, you look ahead to Matthew chapter 14, and you read the account of what happened to John. He was beheaded while he was still in prison. And so he never saw the passion of the Christ. He never saw the trial. He never saw the suffering, also uh, um, prophesied by um, Isaiah. He never saw the crucifixion, the burial in the tomb, the resurrection, or the ascension into heaven. He saw none of that. His John the Baptist's perspective as a prophet was limited to 39 books of the Old Testament. The least of those who have, least of these in the kingdom of heaven, who are greater than John the Baptist, are illustrated in those photographs that I just showed you. Because they have witness, they have perspective to the full counsel of God as revealed in the New Testament, in the Gospels and in the Acts and the Epistles. The least of these in the kingdom of heaven are sitting in this sanctuary right now. 
Because you and I have the privilege that John the Baptist never had. We have the privilege of introducing Jesus as Messiah, as the Redeemer who died on the cross, rose again, that John could never do because he he died. And so that's how it's possible that you and I have the privilege of being engaged in a work even greater than John the Baptist. So how do we do that? I suggest a few things. Number one, we pray without ceasing. Tomorrow we'll have the privilege of beginning our five days of prayer. And I have become convinced in my own experience at Jefferson Baptist that James speaks of the, the effectual fervent prayer. And I believe fervent prayer has less to do with emotion and more to do with volume. And I don't mean volume like yelling. I mean volume like time. We spend lengthy periods of time in prayer and God manifests his presence in that room. We pray on Thursday nights. Every week we pray for our missionaries. And um, we have typically about four to eight people who show up. Wouldn't it be great how different would our the effectiveness of our missions work be if we had 50 or even 100 people show up at those Thursday night prayer times over there in the Discipleship Center? We give sacrificially. Next week we're, we'll be giving an offering for the uh, missions. It will fund the missions effort for the entire year. And um, um, our goal is $250,000 to support these missionaries and also to make, enable them to um, cultivate problem-solving and relationships with the people with whom they minister. We also do short-term missions. We send uh, groups of people from this church to overseas, to, to Europe, to Asia, to South America, and to Africa, and to encourage our missions work there. We have a team uh, scheduled in April. We're looking at another one to go to uh, April into the Sierra Leone. And in um, uh, the summer, we're looking at going to the Cameroon, to Janelle Lonbeck. And there are others. I'd like to see us have four teams at least a year, like we did before COVID. And so if you have an interest in that, I would encourage you to contact one of the mission, uh, committee, mission committee members. I've listed their names on the back of your notes. We have an internship where people have an opportunity to spend three months, extended period of time with our missionaries to learn the mission's work. And finally, we go and tell. We use what we know about God in Revelation. We use what we know about our friendships to, to um, showcase God as creator in our conversation and point to the special revelation like Paul did in Acts 17. We're grateful, Lord, today for the privilege that we have of worship. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement, for the admonition to, to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we just pray this morning that you would continue to bless our effort. We pray that your spirit would be poured out in ministry among those people with whom we serve. Bless now the remainder of our time this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.